Good morning, church. The scripture this morning will come from Luke 6, verses 17 through 49. You can find that passage on page 1570 of the Pew Bible in front of you. Luke 6, 17 through 49. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you whenever anyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the plank out of your eye, 
and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck the house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment a torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Thanks, Becca. Thanks, Becca. Hey, everyone. So, um, so I was 14. I was on this fishing boat my dad had just bought, which was a like 19, circa 1957, like glorified rowboat, you know, um, which I was thrilled with. And I like cast my lure into the tree and where I was trying to get it out. So I like jump onto this tree that my lure was in and I'm like getting it out. And I get it out and I throw it in the water and I'm getting right back, ready to get back into the boat, right? And about the time I'm getting ready to get back into the boat, I'm kind of, sh- I'm on this tree that's dead and it's kind of shaking a little bit. I look down and at the, about a foot from my foot at the bottom of the tree is this big nest of black water snakes. Somewhere between seven and 30,000 of them. I mean, just in there somewhere. And so that was a little unnerving. And so they're starting to like kind of slither everywhere. And there's like 10 or 15 of them going in the water, you know. And so I'm like, okay, I'm ready to get back in the boat. So I, uh, I get, my, my dad's coming in with a boat. So I go to step onto the boat. And about that time, Yellow Lake was this thin kind of glacial lake. The wind just like blew down this valley super hard. It was like, almost like it was on cue trying to create a 27-year-later sermon illustration because it caught that boat and it just pushed that thing down river, so to speak. And I was already pretty weight committed to the boat. And so I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get back on the tree. And I didn't look like I was going to be able to get in the boat. So I thought, this will still work. I'll hold on to the tree and I'll like hook the boat with my foot and I'll pull these two together. And it turned out that, that, you know, the wind and weight and stuff was stronger than my little groin muscles. And so this stuff just kept going apart, and then I, I ended up in the water with the snakes. And so, you know, 26 years later, most of the night sweats and bedwetting has stopped, but the sermon, the sermon relevance of this is still, is still relevant. And like, it, you just can't, you just don't want your feet on two things moving in opposite directions. It's anatomically not a good idea. And so, like, we've, we've talked about this over the last few months, right? So, like, biologically, it's a fact you don't want your feet going in opposite directions. Last fall in the Substance series, we talked about that, like, your heart can't be going in opposite directions. Like, you can't have two masters that are fundamentally opposed to each other, worldliness and Jesus, right? And by worldliness, if you're new, I don't mean irreligion. I mean worldliness, that is, the principles that are not Jesus' principles. And you can do that in a religious way. You can be religiously worldly. And you can be irreligiously worldly. It's just a, its own thing, right? And so 
And what will happen is if you love the world and you love Jesus, your heart is going to get torn in two. And that's terrible because it destroys all your motivation and it makes you angry and depressed and anxious. And it's, it's just an awful way to live. And Jesus said an impossible way to live, right? In this passage, Jesus kind of makes clear that your, your mind can't work that way either, right? You can't, you can't love Jesus and worldliness mentally. You can't, you can't think both thoughts at the same time. One of them has to take precedence. And so Jesus is saying, ultimately, you're going to have to choose how to think about the world and the way that the world thinks about the world and the way the kingdom is are very different. We, we talked the last couple weeks about how the Gospel of Luke lays out and that if you want to understand any individual passage in the Gospels and in the book of Acts in, in particular, understanding what came right before is pretty important. And so in chapters 3 and 4, Jesus comes on the scene as the Son of God, right? So he's 30 years old. He's old enough to be a priest. He is the Son of David and the Son of Zerubbabel, Son of the Great King and the Son of the Great Redeemer. He is the Son of God, and he is approved of by God, and we should listen to him in his baptism. God says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And he is filled with this Holy Spirit. He goes out in the desert to be tempted. He walks through the temptation of the desert, the same as the people of Israel, the same as Moses, except he succeeds. And so he, like, he is the Savior, right? And so then last week we looked at 5, 1 to 6, 16, where Jesus gathers his disciples and gets in trouble with the religious teachers. It starts with the calling of Peter, James, and John, who will be the three most central apostles. And it ends with him appointing apostles out of his disciples. Now, what are apostles? So the word apostolos, the word apostle, means somebody who's sent. So what kind of person does a teacher and savior send? Right? Well, probably people with the teaching about salvation. Right? And so what's happening here is, right, he's getting in trouble with the religious teachers, this group called the Pharisees. And what he's doing is he's replacing them. They're teaching about what God is like. And what the kingdom of God is like is wrong. It's totally inadequate. And it's not saving. It's actually damning. In Matthew, he says to the Pharisees, you'll go to the ends of the earth to get one disciple to follow after you, and then you'll make him twice the son of perdition as you. It's not—that's not a compliment, even though it's multisyllabic, right? Like, he's—he does not—he's he, like, you guys are not doing this right. And so what Jesus is doing by appointing these apostles is he's coming up with a new faculty for the people of God, a new group of teachers, a new group of pastors. And so in this passage, he's basically going to say, and this is what we teach. This is the message of the kingdom of God that you need to know, right? And so he starts with these blessings and woes, right? But the way, if you put all seven of these passages together, right, in all seven passages, they would all teach in one way or another this truth. That the truth of the kingdom of God cannot be understand, understood in worldly terms. If you try to think like the world, if you try to think with mammon at the center, with, and you try to, you try to be kind of like Jesus, but you kind of hold on to the principles of how the, the other side functions, it just, it splits your mind in two. It's, it's really not workable. And that, that's one of the things that Jesus is just always after us about. Because we're always, we're just, we're double-minded creatures. Because our fear and our anxieties 
and our pride and conceit is always trying to have it all. And what that destroys is purity, singleness, clarity, oneness, integrity. Right? So the first two sections kind of go together, right? The blessings and the curses. And so Jesus starts with these blessings, and he basically says, the despised are blessed, and he says, the people who seem to have it good are kind of cursed, right? Now, and on one level, like, most people like that teaching, especially if you're middle class. That's like the best teaching for the middle class, because the middle class are basically like, great, the poor are fine, and yeah, everybody hates the rich. I mean, that's kind of like, Right? So, like, everybody believes that somewhere in the world, depending on which political party you like, there's either some rapacious capitalist to hate or some, like, corrupt politician, right? And, yeah, those people are get rich, and of course they're terrible, and they're probably cursed. And isn't it great that the poor are blessed so we don't need to help them? And so that really works, right? But the problem is, is that if you read the section on the rich, it's like people who are comfortable have enough to eat— laugh a lot, and people speak well of you. Okay, that sounds like middle-class people to me, right? People who, like, they have enough, they're comfortable, they have a nice life, and people like them, and the reputation matters to them, right? Rich people, like, super rich people, they're rich enough, they don't really care what you think, right? And so it's a little unnerving, and so the question is, how do you interpret a passage like this? Right? Now you might say, well, like, this is, this is a hard teaching, and so you need to interpret it as literally as possible, because otherwise you won't believe it. Right? Oh, that's sort of true and sort of false. The reasoning is, is, the reasoning is bad, but the, the intention is good. The intention of, like, we're, we're prone to blow off hard teachings. That's right. Right? But a lot of times people deliver hard teachings hyperbolically, like they really emphasize something in a way that's meant to drive a single point home, not to make like every possible exception false, right? So one of the key verses is the first line in verse 20, which is, looking at his—say it with me—disciples, he said— So it's important to recognize that this is a teaching Jesus is giving his disciples. He's gathered his disciples together, and he's teaching them. And so he's not making a blanket statement about poverty and wealth. He's talking to them about what it means for them to live in the kingdom of God, for them to believe something very different about the world than what the Pharisees teach or the Romans teach. Right? In Jesus' mind, those are two different kinds of worldliness. There's the, like, strong, virile, irreligious— manly Roman fortitude. We're going to win. We're going to be happy because we're going to kick your butt, right? And then there's the Pharisee way of being worldly, which is to contort the rules and the morality so that they work for you, so that you have a good name, but you can still kind of do what you want, and you can still hate the people you want to hate, and love the people you want to love, and make it like the way to be a good person. You see, Jesus, like, despises both of those ways of life. He's like, neither of those are—have anything to do with the kingdom of God. Right? And so what this—what this passage is really focused on, because you can't—see, if you take it super literally, it doesn't even make sense. Okay, so follow me. 
Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Now this one. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Okay, so the idea is if you want to be blessed, you should be sad now, not happy. Right? Now, blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Do you see the problem? Are you supposed to be happy or sad? Right? The most important line in that passage, in terms of interpreting it, is the one that is right after that slide, which is this. Sometimes, sometimes the thing you need to interpret is the first line. Sometimes it's the last line. Sometimes it's somewhere in the middle, right? So it says here, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. That sounds encouraging, right? But then he, used, he says this, for— so this is the reason all that logic works. For this is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Right? And then there's all the woes. And then it says, Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you, for this is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Now why is that important? Because Jesus is essentially making an argument. There is, you see, in both the Roman way of seeing life and the Pharisee way of seeing life, Blessing and the good life, or success, small s, are parallel. If you do it right, you get both. In Roman terms, there, there may or may not be gods, but if, you know, you're a strong person, you get it done, you accomplish things, blessing and success are basically the same thing, right? In a religious, moralistic worldview, right, if you do the right things, God—there's this great theme of blessing in the Bible, right? So if you do the right stuff, God is going to bless you. It's going to go together, right? In both worldviews, blessing and success go together. And Jesus is like, no, they don't. They don't go together. Sometimes they go together, but they don't naturally go together. And you really shouldn't expect them to go together. And he's like, and I can prove it to you. I can prove it to the Pharisees that they already believe that. And what's the one— irrefutable argument to a religious Jewish Pharisee that you can't get away from, that the good life and happiness and living for the kingdom do not usually go together. And the answer is, every prophet that ever lived in the entire Jewish tradition. Right? I mean, just go back. Just go back. Let's start with Moses, right? Or, I mean, Jews considered Abraham a prophet. You go back to Abraham. Mo Moses, how did, was his life easy? I mean, did that go well? He didn't even make it into the promised land. He wanted to die. He asked God to take his people back. Like, that was not fun. Jeremiah, like, we literally have an English word called a Jeremiad, which is when you, like, complain incessantly about things and how bad they are. Because Jeremiah's life was that bad. He was always had to be like, man, things are bad, guys. I mean, they're bad. Like, we should stop doing this. We should do something entirely different because this is bad. Things are going bad. And people are like, somebody throw him in a pit and cover him with mud. Which, that's in the Bible. They did that. It's, you're not supposed to deal with your problems that way. But that happened to him. He's called the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. All right, so he did a little mourning. Right? Elijah wanted to die. Right? He, everybody hated him. People were trying to kill him. He's running away. He's kind of out of gas. He's like, God, will you please let me die? So he's dying of exhaustion. And God's like, well, I'll give you some food. We'll, wait, we'll work this out. Right? 
I mean, you just go through these, and it's like Hosea had to marry a prostitute and was basically hated, but he's like making an argument for like how the people of God are like a prostitute, right? Ezekiel had to go into exile and live in exile. I mean, like, you just go through this stuff, and like all the—Isaiah was sawed in half. Like, wake up and smell the bananas here, guys. Like, the, like, you, like, he's looking at the Pharisees, and he's like, you guys— you don't believe this. You don't—you say—because see, the Pharisees were like, look, if you do the right things, and you, like, love your neighbor and hate your enemy like you're supposed to and all that, like, things are going to go well with you because it's wisdom. And, like, wisdom leads to a good life. It does, except people basically hate real righteousness because it makes them feel terrible. And so they—they they really hate it. And so if your life is filled with that, they're probably going to hate you. And then, then things don't go well when lots of people hate you. Right? It says in the book of, of Hebrews, and what more shall we say? I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Everybody who, every single one had a hard life, right? Who, through faith, they did conquer kingdoms, administer justice, gain what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quench the fury of the flames, escape the edge of the sword— whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle, who routed armies, that women received back their dead, raised to life again. So like there were a lot of huge, incredible victories, but it was, it, was it the kind of victory that brought wealth, laughter, fullness of food, and a good name? Was it that kind of victory? And it says, others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And these were all con commended for their faith. And yet none of them received what was promised. You see, the, the point of this passage is not mainly don't worry about the distribution of wealth in the world because in the end, the poor are going to have plenty and the rich are going to be poor. That's, that may be partly true, but don't think you're going to be rich in heaven just because you don't have money. And don't think that just because you have money, you can't follow Jesus unless you give every penny away. Because by the time we get to chapter 19, Zacchaeus, who is going to be really radically wealthy, is going to give half of his money away. He's still going to be wildly wealthy, and Jesus is going to be like, that's awesome. You're, you're great. You're a son of Abraham. That's not the main point. The point is this. On what basis are you willing to sell the truth and perjure yourself forever? That's, that's the question. If you're not going to be like the Pharisees, and you're not going to be like the Romans— if you're going to not be split in two by worldliness and godliness, if you're going to have one master, and you're going to live for that one master, if you're going to live according to the truth of the actual kingdom of God the way it really is, you're going to be pure of heart. On what basis are you going to do that? Because if you do that, if you're his disciple— Blessed, blessed are you if you're impoverished. Even if you don't have enough to eat, and even if you mourn, and even if you have to go about in sheepskins and goatskins and lives in holes in the ground. 
And even if people exclude you and hate you and destroy your good name, accuse you of horrific things and try to personally wreck you and destroy your career, listen, that's, that's how the people who say they like the prophets now, that's how their parents really treated the prophets in that day. Right? Even us, like, any of us would have loved to believe that, like, if we lived in the day of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's like, guys, we should not do this, we'd be like, we'd be like, I'm with Jeremiah. Okay, nobody was with Jeremiah. Right? Like, no, you wouldn't. It's, it's, a, it's a very bad conceit to look into the past and to think that you would have been on the good team in the past. You probably wouldn't have been. Right? And it's important to recognize that you, you probably would have grumbled at Moses, and you would have told Jeremiah he was being too negative, and you would have, you know, like that's, you would have told Daniel he was being like too, like religiously fundamentalist. He should just, bow, they, you know, they should just bow to the big statue and only pray to the, or don't pray for 30 days, you know, because what Jesus is saying is, you need to know at the start of this thing, if you're going to be my disciple or if you're going to be my apostle, if you're going to follow me or teach for me, here's what you need to understand. If you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you're going to walk the same path as the prophets did. And people didn't like them. And if there is, listen, if there is one vein in your body that wants to be approved of, like you're, you're, like, you're gonna fall in the water with the snakes. That's what's gonna happen to you. Okay, like, you, like, you have—that's why Jesus talks about a purity of heart, like, willing one thing. And, and that's why he talks about the flesh being put to death through something brutal like crucifixion, because it's gotta die, and this has gotta live, and it's gotta be one thing. Otherwise, it doesn't go. Now, if your response to that is, okay, Nick, I, okay, but, um, whew, so what do I do? Like, if I have, if I've, like, eaten consecutive days, like, more than three or something, like, what, like, what, what does Jesus want from me then, according to what you're saying? And the answer is, oh, you just keep reading, right? The answer is you just keep reading. So if, if you're like, okay, no, 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 you know what? I do believe he's the Son of God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he is the King of the kingdom that is real. I believe I cannot have that in worldliness too. Like, okay, so, so where do we go from here? Okay, great. This is where we go from here. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on, the, on one cheek, turn him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, don't stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. Right? So the, the point here is, is that the, like the first step of thinking about the kingdom is to love your enemy. That's a pretty big first step. Right? So how, how do you even do that? Right? 
Now, I have some people, some people like to deconstruct teachings like this by like pushing them to their logical extreme, which is actually a ba- very bad way to think morally, okay? Almost any moral commandment, even some of the most extreme ones, have some exception in the extreme, okay? So if you can come up with an exception to a moral commandment, it doesn't mean the moral commandment is wrong. For example, are you allowed to get an abortion? No, okay? Well, but Nick, what if it's, what if the pregnancy's in the fallopian tube and like it's gonna kill the mother like an ectopic pregnancy? Well, then what about that? Well, of course you can! Like, don't be stupid. Like, of course. It's not the same idea. The moral conundrum of receiving life and the issue of not wanting to deal with a child you didn't plan on or some disability that child might have and you not wanting your life affected by that's not relevant in the exception. It's an exception, but the exception doesn't overwhelm the rule. Was it right for the midwives who told the pharaoh in Egypt a lie that Jewish women like would have their children before they'd even get there so they couldn't kill all the boys? That's a lie. And it explicitly says in the Bible that God blessed them and gave them children of their own. Right? Are you allowed to lie? No! <laughs> no, you are not allowed to lie. You need to be, tell the truth. The Bible says li- all liars have their place in the lake of fire. Right? Like, Jesus is very committed to the truth. You need to tell the truth. Does that mean there are not certain totalitarian situations in which you're hiding Jews under your table and Nazis say, are there Jews here? Where you can't say there are no Jews here. No, there are a couple exceptions that are very well circumscribed in the Bible under totalitarianism in which it may be permissible to lie. Does that mean you can like lie to your spouse? No! You basically can never lie. Right? And you go there, can you get a divorce? No! But what if my husband's running around with these other women? Then yes! Jesus explicitly gave that one thing, right? Like there's two, there's two exceptions in the Bible, right? And that's it. That's all. Can you get a divorce? No! What if it's one of those exceptions? Well then yes! Right? Like moral thinking requires clarity. Now what's the problem with exceptions? The problem with exceptions is that everybody thinks the exception applies to them. Right? So like, I, my husband looks at other women sometimes and it makes me very uncomfortable and I feel like I'm not being cherished and I feel like that's adulterous. It isn't in that sense. Right? Is it wrong? Yes. Should he be confronted? Yes. Should he feel shame in being confronted by other godly men? Yes. You should tell me about it. You should tell his friends about it. We should do something about it. Absolutely. Is it adultery so that you can get abortion? So you can get a divorce? No! Do you understand? So like, almost all absolute moral commands under some concatenation of circumstances, has an exception. The Bible is full of them. Absolute commands that have like one exception. And that's the whole purpose of community and social shame. Right? The purpose of social shame is when people go, I think this applies to me. And everybody around them goes, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You want it to apply to you because it's hard to do the right thing but it doesn't apply to you. And then they're like, oh, I guess it doesn't apply to me. Or I feel bad. Sometimes it's good to feel bad. Right? And so, people say to me, well, Nick, if I have to give to everybody who asks of me, like, like I've had parents say, listen, I have a, a son who's addicted to heroin. If I give to him every time he asks of me, 
then like he'll put our entire life savings into his veins and die. Should I give him the money, right? On the basis of the scripture, should she give him the money? No! No! No, it says, you see, the, the key line in this is, do to others as you would have them do to you. Right? So like, if you and I were enemies, and I was, and, and I was in need, but you're my enemy, would I want you to help me? Yes. Yes, because if I'm really in need, I'll take help from my enemy. Right? Because I, I, I need help. And here's the thing about enemies. Now, if you can, think of one of your enemies in your head. I know some of you are like very pious. And you're like, I don't— It's probably your kid, okay? Just like— <laughs> Or your parent. Like I said that last hour, kid, your parent. And like literally this dad and his teenage daughter like looked at each other and put their arms around each other. It was so sweet. <laughs> Right? But it's probably like in your house, okay? Now, picture your enemy. Now ask yourself, do I think I'm more righteous than them? And what's the answer? Yes is the answer. The answer is yes, you do think that. Okay? You do think you're more righteous than them. It's possible, holistically speaking, maybe you are, but you're probably not. Right? Be because it says that, remember, it says at the end of the passage, God is generous and merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. Okay? And so the, the kingdom of God proceeds on at least two assumptions. You are not better than them. And two, God is better than you. <laughs> okay? Those are very critical. If you could get those two ideas down, we would be—we'd all be in good shape. If I could get those ideas down, we would be in good shape. I am not better than them, and God is better than me. Okay? That's basically the theme of the whole passage, right? Are you, is your enemy better than you? No. Are you better than your enemy? Probably not, right? If you believe that, and you believe that God is generous with his enemies, then you should be generous with them. Does that mean you have to give money to a heroin addict that asks for it? No, because love means to do what is in the true good of the other. If I was a heroin addict, right, and I wanted more money for drugs, and I asked my mom for it, in a sound state of mind, would I want my mom to give me that money? And the answer is no, I would not. So it is not loving, and it is not in the true good of another person to give in that situation, and you shouldn't. Right? The reason why it has to say it that way is because most of us will make all kinds of excuses about why we don't have to love our enemies. Or why we don't have to be generous. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you need to start with being generous and being loving and loving your enemies. Because in the kingdom of God, the goal is peace and reconciliation and cooperation because the goal is love. It is not the maintenance of your relationship as enemies. And, I, and the, the worldly mind always says this. The religious worldly mind says, it's right for me to hate my enemy because they're wicked. The sort of Roman, pragmatic, secular worldly mind says, it's suicide to strengthen your enemies. Everything you do should undermine and weaken your enemies so that you can defeat them. Right? Both of those are worldliness. Both of those Jesus entirely rejects. Jesus says, the purpose of your enemy is that you should win them over. 
You should do whatever you can to win them over. You should start with loving them, doing good to them, blessing them, and praying for them. Anything that falls into those four categories, go for it. Because what you actually believe is that if people that you've broken relationships with would come to you in peace, and they would really apologize—think about somebody you have this fight with, you can't get over that fight— like, on some level, you believe that if they came to you and said that they were sorry and asked for your forgiveness and, like, really humbled themselves to you and asked to make restitution for what they'd done, you believe you're a good enough person that you would forgive and restore the relationship. You believe you'd be like, finally, you finally realized how bad a person you are and how good a person I am. You finally have, like, realized that you should apologize that's so nice of you. God must really be working in you, and I finally accept your apology, but you should still do some push-ups. You know, like, it, it'd be something like that, right? And, but the, here's the thing. You are that person. I'm that person. I'm that enemy, right? And see, if you don't believe you're better than them, and you think if they came to you and really apologized, you would accept them, get it? but you don't think they'll respond because you really do think you're better than them. And you can't, you can't get free of that until you act, until you go and love your enemy. And the same thing's true of lending, right? The same thing's true of lend lending, right? Like, it's for helping people. It's not for making a profit. Now, I can't get into the economics of investment, but lending to—if you lend it to Apple, you should expect something back, okay? Like, economic lending is, like, not the same thing as profiting from the situational need of the poor, okay? And I'm not going to get into the economics of, like, pawn shops and stuff like that, okay? Because that's for maybe another time. The point is, is that if somebody needs money— and they need help. Jesus is like, you should just give it to them. And here's, here's what's probably going to happen. They're probably not going to pay you back. And you should be okay with that because, turns out, you're not going to be able to pay Jesus back. Okay? And so, like, that's, that's hard. It's hard to, like, first of all, it's hard to save money so that you could lend to anybody in the first place. That means you have to choose to go out with stuff you could very well buy so that you have money on hand so that even after your other obligations of generosity, you have money in reserve so that if you need to help somebody, you can. Okay, that's a very frugal life, first of all. Secondly, you're going to feel like you don't want to give people money because they're in the problem because of their own stupidity in the first place. And that's—I mean, that's frustrating because you're like— you, you just quit three jobs in one month because you don't like the way people talk to you, and now you can't pay your light bill— and now you want me to give you money. Now, first of all, in that case, maybe you shouldn't give them money. Because you've got to ask yourself the question, is it in their true good for you to give it to them? But in some cases, it just is. Like, I remember a couple years ago, this young woman came to me. She was a single mom. She was in a small group, and she said, Nick, um, I was in this small group, and um, I think—so I, I shared as a prayer request that, like, my— like. I, my tires were dead on my car, and like I didn't have any money to buy new tires, and like I didn't know what I was going to do. Could they please pray for me? And so they did. They prayed for me, and then like the next week, they gave me like a check for $550 to buy tires for my car. And she's like, is that even allowed? Right? <laughs> and I was like, 
well, did you like guilt them into it or something? And she was like, I don't think so. I was like, no, that's, that's called, we call that being a Christian. <laughs> right? Like, it's a, that, that's a normal thing for a Christian. It's a normal thing. Just be generous. Just pay for stuff, if you can, for other people. To bless them and to be nice to them. And, and even to lend to them. Like, I, Alexa and I did this when we, were in, when we were in seminary. We had a couple of friends. That, it was both like car issues for both of them. And they were waiting for insurance payment, but they had to get a car, and they couldn't drive to campus, and all this kind of stuff. And so, I mean, we just wrote a check for, for both of them. It was over $2,000, and this is, I mean, back when we were making it by $11 a month, you know. And, and I, I really thought they were going to pay me back. These were all like college-educated people in graduate school and all that. But, you know, things like they bought the new car, and then it had a transmission issue they didn't know about, that kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. So I didn't see a penny of any of that money back. And it was, I did lend it to them. I didn't just give it to them. I said, listen, pay me back if you can, but if you can't, it's fine because I was trying to obey this passage. Sometimes people just need help. And um, when you help people through the government, it usually leads to hatred. It's just because, because it's far away from you, and then you distrust the people because the money's really being confiscated for you to be given to them, and you know that there's all kinds of like— dark magic going on and who gets what and all that kind of stuff, you know? And you're like, well, we, I, I don't know if we're being accountable enough. See, like, when you lend somebody money, you, like, know what you're doing. And you can have the same amount of, like, n- of lack of knowledge, like, is this really the right thing? Am I being accountable enough? But when you give the money, it's your money. And it's them. And you do what you want. And it's fine. Right? And so it tends to lead to affection. If there aren't strings attached, you know you're probably not getting the money back. You're doing it because you love them and you love Jesus. Because lending is to help people. Does that make sense? And you should do that. Like one of the reasons why I have my boat is called the Millennium Falcon because it doesn't look like much, but she's got it where it counts, is because I can say to anybody, no matter what their level of boating skill, hey, come borrow my boat. Because I know if they sink it, like I'm out 2,400 bucks. Because if—but if I buy a really nice boat, then I got to think about, like, what's going to happen, not just to me, but to them. Like, if they wreck my boat, they'll feel so responsible, and they'll feel so bad about it, so I just have a piece of junk. But—but it it can still bring joy, and people can enjoy it, and I can take people out on it, right? But the—you see, the the point is, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God should make a difference— The people that you call sinner, like, they do natural worldly stuff with each other. They'll lend to each other. They'll do stuff for each other. Like, the kingdom should change the way you look at the world. You should be willing to risk what we consider worldly success in order to live for the kingdom. And if that's really part of the purity of your heart in following Jesus, you will do things other people who don't believe in the kingdom are insufficiently motivated to do reliably. They'll do it every once in a while. They'll do it if they think that there will be a worldly payoff. There's all kinds of reasons why they do something like it. But the pure thing itself reliably, they will not be able to do. And one of the reasons why we are not able to do it as much is because we're still trying to stand on a tree and a boat at the same time. Okay, this is like this—the forgiveness thing is like a whole other sermon. But— what I want to look at today and briefly is just the question of this does not make sense from a worldly perspective. It only makes sense if you see the purposes of the kingdom of God. Right? Now, judgment in this passage and in Matthew 7, the more famous version, 
um, means condemnation. That is, you are permanently on the outside of the circle of people I call my neighbors. Do you understand? So like, there are some people where you just go like, you're out. You're not redeemable anymore. You don't get to be in polite company anymore. I don't accept you anymore. That's the, the choice of condemnation. It's the declaration of a judgment. That's not the same thing as saying, hey, that's wrong. If somebody tells you something, like you're doing something wrong, and you say you're judging me, let me just be very direct with you for a minute. You're being evasive, okay? If somebody tells you you're doing something wrong, and they don't say you're a worthless piece of crap who's going to hell, okay? That would be condemnation, okay? But if they say, look, this thing you're doing, it's wrong. You can't keep doing this. You need to stop doing it, right? That's not judgment in this sense. And if you say, quit judging me, you're being evasive. I don't care what Oprah says, okay? Or whoever the new people are on the podcasts and so forth. The point of this passage is this. The verse right before it says, Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. Literally, sons of God, which is more focused than just children. Because sons assumes that you resemble the Father. It'd be better to say sons and daughters rather than just children. Because when I call one of my kids son or one of my girl's daughter, like part of the connotation there is that they resemble me and I see my resemblance in them and they belong to me. That's different than just the generic children. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, sons of the Most High. And then he says, because, so why are you sons of the Most High? Why do you resemble the Son of God? Why do you resemble God Most High? And the answer is, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked, be merciful just as your Father in heaven is merciful. You see the idea there? He's saying, what, what fixes the thing you want to judge? You see the problem? Right? There's somebody who's doing something, and you really want to judge them because they're being really stupid, okay? And you just want to be like, you're a worthless expletive, right? And Jesus is like, that's not, that's not what you're going to do. What you're going to do is, you're going to be merciful to the ungrateful and the wicked. You're going to be kind, and you're going to find a way to love them, right? Now, Jesus is really clever here because he knows that people are always looking for an excuse. Now, some of you who are like more liberal-minded, right? Like, your natural deal for this is like, oh yeah, judgment means like you can't like tell stuff. You can't like get in people's business. You can't tell people they're wrong, right? It's kind of like the tolerance leading to relativism kind of way. And Jesus expressly says that that's poppycock, right? Because the very next verse is, he also told them this parable, can a blind, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes! Yes! If you just say, well, let's just lower the moral standards. Let's just, then, then the word mercy doesn't even make sense. The word mercy is like, I've got you, right? Mercy means I've got you by the throat and I'm going to let go. That's, mercy assumes you deserve condemnation, you are dead as nails, and then you're released. You get what you don't. You don't get what you do deserve, right? And if you just lower the moral standards, right, whatever, man, right? Like what happens is then everybody's blind. And what happens to blind people, they lead each other and then they fall into a pit. That's not good. Falling into a pit in this context, not good, okay? But then you're like, oh, 
but then, see, there's the conservative problem where you go like, what you need to do with people who are acting stupid is you need to get them out of the group. Because listen, if you let them just like mill around like in the lobby and like drink our coffee, then they're gonna like, their presence is infectious, right? And they're gonna bring down like everybody's expectations, right? Okay, the very next verse after the like liberal thing is wrong is, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's what that means. What that means is, the thing you're hoping, the infection, the infectious person you're hoping to get out to quarantine so that their little infection won't infest us, it's already here. Or you're already infected with it because you're a human being, okay? The person that you would like to judge is probably a less sophisticated version of doing the sin that you love more than them, and so you've taken great pains to become more sophisticated about. And so because of that, the person you want to judge is a God-given mirror for you to look at so you can see that thing in yourself. Because you see, you've covered over the sin you really love with all kinds of little layers of sophistication, so you don't see it in yourself anymore. You've hid it. You've put on your little makeup, and you've covered your little thing, and you've done your little thing. And then God puts a really obvious version of that same sin right in front of you. You're like, that's so ugly and stupid and dumb. Like, how can that person not see what they're doing, right? And then God's like, okay, listen. Look a little closer. What is that person really doing? Okay, now think about yourself for a minute. Right? And let me just tell you guys— if you do that, if you practice that, you won't ever need anyone to confront you in the, the rest of your life. Everybody's existence, just combined with a little judgmentalism in your heart, will be a constant rebuke to every sin in your heart. You just walk around. Every time, every time you want to judge somebody for something, no matter how small, no matter how big, you go, this is an occasion to see that in me. This is a God-given mirror to see that in me. Oh, man. Because you'll judge people about every 10 seconds. And then you, most of the time, you will see that sin in you if you learn to be honest with yourself. And what that allows is then the Holy Spirit will be right there to assure you and say, this is so good. This is so good. This is so good. We're going to kill this thing. We're going to get rid of it. You're going to be healed. You're going to be free. You're going to grow in real righteousness. You're going to be a blessing to all people around you. This is so good. This is so good. This is so good. I've been waiting for this moment. I've been waiting so long for this moment. All of our frailties are mirrors to each other of the planks in our eyes. And, and then he says, listen, if then you let, if you let the Spirit then work in you and you can remove that, then you can help your brother and say, listen, man. And then you'll have something to say because you'll have to—you'll just dealt with it. So then you can be much more pastoral in how you approach the other person. And you'll feel terrible about yourself, and so you won't feel judgmental about them. But you see— that is, that is not a Roman or Pharisee way of looking at this. It's a very different way of looking at the world. And you see, if, if we don't look at the world like that, we're going to get torn in two. Your, your heart will be torn in two. Your head will be torn in two. Right? In those last passages, there's this, there's this passage that nobody really likes. 
about a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing good fruit. And here's the very simple point there. The way you behave and the way you talk is the real you. Okay? Stop believing that quite apart from your words and behavior, there is this special creamy center real you that is sweet and loving and caring and generous and hopeful and cheerful and gorgeous and like all that, right? That's the way the world thinks, right? It is, it is religious moralism that says, well, these things might be true, but I do the right these things, and so I'm a good person. Or the other side that says, as long as I stand up and win, as long as I do the things that bring success, that's really all there is. And Jesus is like, no, it isn't. No, no. What comes out of you in your actions and in your speech is the overflow of your real heart, which should both terrify you and if you're growing in redemption, also bring some hope. There's usually going to be a mixture. And he's like, you need to, you need to ask Jesus, ask God, ask the Spirit for more of the things that you want to see more of, because that is really the real you. And ask him to make it more part of the real you. Be ready to repent and believe and like move in that direction. And when you see stuff that's yucky, don't be like, oh, I just had a bad moment. No, no, that came out of your heart. That is there. That is real. Don't deny it. Because denial, whether the religious version of denial or the secular version of denial, is denial. It's delusion. It's unreality. And Jesus, Jesus knows that you and I, we can only, we can only walk in the way of the kingdom. It's just because it's funny, right? Because people who hate Christian faith think that it's an exercise in unreality. But what Jesus does by focusing us on the truth of the kingdom is to take, is to actually to take our unrealities away. And mo for most of us, that is so painful that we would rather call it unreality to escape than to face the truth. Right? And then the last bit, he says basically this. He's like, if you don't do that, then you may be building a success life for yourself. You may build a life where you're rich and you have enough food to eat and you're, you laugh and people think well of you. But that house is sitting on sand. And the minute a storm comes, it's all going to blow away because it is not dug down deep. It's not real. It's not firm. It's not—it is of no real substance. And he said, here's what substance looks like. Do you know what, you know what he says? He says, those who hear my words and do them. Do them. Put them into practice. Is, so you could be like, well, dig down deep. Does that mean I should study more and like know more? No, that's actually not what it means. It means doing the things Jesus says. That is what it means to dig down deep so that no matter what hits you in your life, no matter what comes along, you have the substantial foundation necessary to stand. Let me end with this. At the very end of G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, he says, of all the things Jesus revealed to us, there, there's one thing that I think he kept back, right? And he said, I think it was his mirth. That is his laughter, his like cheerful happiness. It's a speculation, but I think he's probably right. Because I think that Jesus generally does hold back the specifics of the promises of what good will happen so as not to contaminate our motivations.
I actually believe that the life he talks about in these blessings and woes is the happiest one that humans can have. I actually believe it'll have the most laughter in real life. And maybe the most mourning. But a different kind of mourning, a mourning with hope. You might grow hungry, but when you eat it, it'll feel like a feast. You might have your name destroyed and carried through the one by others, but your name will be cherished by those who really belong to the kingdom. They will love you. And Jesus said in the book of Revelation that those who overcome the world, one of the things that will happen to those who overcome the world, he said, everyone will receive a white stone with a new name on it. A new name on it. Because a lot of us have either destroyed our own names or had our names destroyed or both. Why would that be a promise? Why would that be part of the perfect promises of the final days that Jesus would add? And as one of those things, you're going to get a new name. And that that will be part of the happiness of heaven. Because he knows. He knows what following the kingdom is like. But what he also knows is, in the strangest ways, these great and terrible things happen through all of the fearful trust that is required to actually live in accordance with the kingdom of God. To become, not just in faith, but in obedient, character-filled action, sons and daughters of the Most High God. And you are that creature. You are invited to that life. You are offered those promises. You are made worthy in the death and resurrection of Christ. You are called by the message of the gospel and its promises. You can take hold, walk in, or reaffirm that this moment. Let's pray. Father, as we get ready to close here, we pray that you would help us to be a people filled with a powerful love. A love that is willing to love our enemies. A love that is willing to lend to those who are not going to pay a penny back. A love who is willing to find, try to find a mercy rather than a judgment when people offend us. A love that is willing to ask what is for the true good of the other person. A love that is willing to believe that we may be morally worse than our enemies. God, will you so teach us the truth of the kingdom, that we would become increasingly people of the kingdom, increasingly recognizable as your sons and daughters, increasingly given fully to the kingdom truths. And we pray that as that happens, no matter what mourning, no matter what attack we endure, that we would find a kingdom joy. And it now, that we would actually spontaneously Rejoice and leap for joy in that day. We trust ourselves to you and we pray that if you would give us one gift, it would be in the day we die, that people of good faith and knowledge of the kingdom would count us in the line of the prophets. In Jesus' name.